open up to Matthew chapter 3. We are in Matthew chapter 3 this morning, and I've called the sermon, Be Prepared, which I can't help but think of the song from The Lion King. Remember that one? Which is really bad, because it's the bad guy singing it about a bad thing, but that's as far as that reference goes. But how about this? Do you ever feel like when you're packing for a trip that you forgot something? Anybody else feel that way ever? Yeah. Is, is it possible to prepare for a trip without feeling that way? I feel that way every single time. We went to a pastor and family uh, getaway a couple for like two or three days up at Hickory Hill Camp uh, about a week or two ago and, and had everything ready, was all prepared. We got there and I didn't have my pillow or my, my bed sheets. And so, yeah, just le- I had prepared them and then left them at home. So we went and scrambled. Turned out the dollar store sells pillows. Who knew? We found pillows at the dollar store, and they weren't that bad. So uh, plug in there for them. I remember once when I was a youth pastor early in my youth ministry career. Youth ministry is interesting because you have the teaching and the discipleship side, but there is a lot of activity planning. Uh, you do a lot of trips, retreats. We were doing a, I believe it was an overnight camping trip. Or maybe it was just a day trip, but we were going to Indiana Dunes. And uh, we were going to go and grill lunch for the youth. We had a group of, I don't know, maybe 20 or so and a handful of adults. And I was struggling on previous events with just constantly forgetting something. And so I remember this event very clearly because I had a very detailed list, like a spreadsheet laid out. Here is what I need. And I went through it and I checked everything off. I had never felt more prepared for a youth event than this event. I was sure that I had everything. I did not have that feeling of forgetting something because I knew I had it written down and had everything. And sure enough, we got there and we started getting the hamburgers out and the hot dogs and I had the ketchup and the mustard and the relish. I think I even had mayo for those that wanted that. We had the buns. We had all the sides. We had all the fixings. We had the utensils for the kids to use. We had all the stuff to get the grill lit and we lit the grill and it was warmed up. And then somebody threw the meat on and he turned to me and he said, where's the cooking utensils? No. We cooked hamburgers and hot dogs on a grill using sticks. We, we flipped them <laughs> with sticks. And it's just, it's one of those things. I think I remember that story every time I pack for a trip. And it's like this constant source of humility for me. You will never, ever not forget something. We'll always forget something. And today I want to talk about something that we need to make sure that we don't forget. To make sure that we are prepared in our own life. I want to read for you Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. That's the passage we're looking at today. And here in Matthew, we're introduced to John the Baptist. You can follow along with me in your Bibles. Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. 
But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees. And every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize with water for repentance. But after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Matthew introduces us to this man that we know as John the Baptist. His name is John. The Baptist is what he did. He baptized a lot. It's not like that was his family name, Baptist. And there certainly was no denomination known as Baptist back then. But he was known for baptizing people. So to separate him from other Johns in Scripture, because there are a lot, we know him as John the Baptist. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Now, who is this guy? He's kind of a strange guy, right? We're told about where he's serving. We're told about what he eats and what he wears, which sounds really scratchy to me and kind of disgusting, locusts and wild honey. But Matthew is making a point with all of these interesting details. And it's not just to help us get interested in the story of John the Baptist. If we look at Malachi chapter 4, in fact, if you have your Bibles, turn back just a few pages to the left. In mine, it's like three or four pages. You'll hit the last chapter of the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 4. Okay, that's, that's how close we are here. Now, understand that in those three or four pages that you flipped backwards, you just covered 400 years of history. There are 400 years in between the Old and the New Testament, and they're known as the 400 years of silence. Because for 400 years, there was no prophet. There was no direct word from the Lord. 400 years of silence between God and his people. And the last prophet to prophesy, and the last thing that the last prophet prophesied is Malachi chapter 4. And I would like to read this for us. Surely the day is coming. It will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble. And the day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left to them. But for you who revere my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its rays. And you will go out and frolic like well-fed calves. Then you will trample on the wicked. They will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord Almighty. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and laws I gave him at Horeb for all Israel. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. Now, those themes are exactly what Matthew is picking up when he gets to John the Baptist. And here at this last chapter, at the end of the Old Testament, you see it dripping with hope and promise of this coming Messiah. This one who would come to set things right for the Lord, including judging the wicked. For 400 years, 
God's people live in a very difficult circumstance. The Old Testament ends with they had gone into exile and yes, they've been brought back. Yes, God has rescued them. Yes, he settled them in the land. Yes, they even have the beginnings of a temple, but it's not much. But then for 400 years, one nation after another comes in and conquers them. And while there are these promises fulfilled at the end of the Old Testament, it is very clear that God's people are not living according to the promises that God has given them. They're not quite there. They're so close, but something is still very much wrong. And there is this hope, this promise that God's Messiah would come to rescue them. This king that he would raise up and he would be the one to set all things right. And God's Messiah would be preceded by Elijah. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. Elijah is a prophet from the Old Testament, one of the most well-known, most powerful of all the prophets in the Old Testament. And Malachi says, someone will come. Elijah or someone who is like Elijah will come. And so Matthew is picking up on this and saying, here he is, one like Elijah, this forerunner to the Messiah has come. If you look at verse 4, if you go back to Matthew chapter 3, every detail here about John emphasizes this. John's clothes were made of camels here and he had a leather belt around his waist. That is straight out of 2 Kings chapter 1 verse 8. That's exactly what Elijah wore. Exactly. It's also what John the Baptist wore. So there's this clear, this is the guy. It's like the gospel writer is saying to everybody, don't miss this. The one who has come to prepare the way for the Messiah is here. All of the gospel writers emphasize that John the Baptist is this coming Elijah, this one, this forerunner to the Messiah. The other interesting thing about his clothes and what he ate is that these were the clothes and the food of a very poor person. This was a man who cared nothing for worldly things. He had a mission. He knew his mission and he sacrificed everything else in his life for this mission. Verse 1 says he preached in the wilderness. Even that is very laden with meaning. In the Jewish mindset, the wilderness was was out there. It was that desert. It, It was a location. It was a real place, but it also had a significant spiritual meaning. The wilderness was the place of wandering. It was the place of temptation. It was the place of trials and testing. It was the place of being lost and needing to be found. It was the place of exile and exodus. It was the place where you needed to be brought back from to come home. At the end of the Old Testament, Israel has come from exile and is back in the land. But it is very clear that spiritually they are still in the wilderness. Though they're living in the promised land, they're very lost. And they're struggling. And they're still waiting for this Messiah to come and make things right. It's interesting the effect that John has on people. If you look at verse 5, you see that people from a very large area, this huge area, and these are Jewish people, Jewish people that were born with the understanding, you are the people of God. And yet they're going to John and saying, something is missing. We need something more. And they're going to him and being baptized. 
You see in verses 7 through 10, a very different group. These religious leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, are are also there. Now, I don't know how much you know about the Pharisees and the Sadducees, but it is really weird to see both of their names together in a sentence. To see both of them together doing anything for any reason together whatsoever is really strange. These two groups absolutely hated each other with a burning passion. The Pharisees and the Sadducees did not get along at all. They were in direct opposition to each other. The Pharisees were a group of Jewish people that felt that if they could teach the Jewish people to follow the Old Testament law so closely, to do all the rituals, all the old things that God had given them, if the people would purify themselves and be really good Jewish people, then the Messiah would come. So they emphasized the Old Testament law. They emphasized holy living and they put all their own rules above and beyond the law to say, if you meet these requirements, you'll definitely meet the Old Testament law. They started with a good heart. You'll see as we walk through Matthew, they went very far astray. The Sadducees, I think is a group that we don't know as much about. The Sadducees were much more secular. The Sadducees tended to be wealthy landowners, still Jewish, but their idea was, well, we've been conquered by the Romans. If we want to survive as the Jewish nation, we need to live like them. We need to get along with them. And if we do this, it happens to just sort of happen that we'll also get wealthy and powerful. But, you know, that's really a byproduct. The Sadducees were very powerful, very wealthy, and very friendly with the Roman occupation. So you can imagine the Pharisees that their deepest desire is to get rid of the Romans by living a very holy life and stay true to a Jewish way of living. And the Sadducees that are saying, it doesn't really matter how you live. Yeah, you're Jewish, but we can give in a little bit. It doesn't really matter. And wealthy and power, that's good too. These two groups hated each other. And it's interesting because scholars throughout history have struggled because Matthew puts these two groups together over and over and over again like they're on the same team. And scholars are going, wait a minute, this is ridiculous. Jesus has a way of bringing people together. Whether it's unity of the gospel and bringing us together because we believe the same thing, or it's bringing two completely opposite groups together because they hated the message and the person of Jesus Christ. And that's what we're seeing here. They are coming because both of them, both groups are being threatened by John the Baptist. The Pharisees said, you just need to be more Jewish. But baptism says, turn away from what you are and who you are. Repent, turn away. So the Pharisees are going, wait a minute, why are you telling them to take a different direction? They don't need to repent. They just need to do it better. And the Sadducees are watching this saying, why are you telling these people to repent? They just need to live better lives in the land that we're in and just give in more and more. Both of them were threatened by the message of John the Baptist. And one thing I love about John is how bold he is. He speaks the truth of God and he doesn't hold back. He tells them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? It's like John is saying to them, why are you here? They weren't there to be baptized. They weren't there with good intentions. The way John responds makes that very obvious. And the way Matthew deals with these groups throughout the rest of the gospel makes it very obvious. They were there with an agenda. They wanted to exert authority over John. They were there to judge him and to judge those that were coming to be baptized. 
Why? Because John was having a profound effect on people. And the reason he was having a profound effect on people is that he was there to prepare the way for the Lord. Look at verse 3. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. As I said, at the end of the Old Testament, there's this feeling that things are not right, that they need to be changed. They need to do something different. They need to live a better life. They need to fix themselves up. They are struggling. They are wandering. Though they're home, they're wandering in the wilderness. And if they could just be better... And yet the prophecy is not prepare yourself and change yourself so that you can be better for God. It is the Lord is coming. It's not change your life and go to him. It's he's coming to you. Look at Isaiah chapter 40 verses 10 and 11. This is further down in the same chapter where this prophecy appears. It says, see the sovereign Lord comes with power and he rules with a mighty arm. See, his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. Just think, these people that were struggling, and all they're getting from the Pharisees is fix yourself up. All they're getting from the Sadducees is it doesn't really matter. But the prophecy said, the Lord is going to come. He's going to set things right. And now John the Baptist has come, and Matthew says he has come to prepare the way for the Lord, the one who is coming. And I love the way that John understands his mission. He understands that Jesus is greater than him. He says, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. The lowest servant in the household, the lowest of the lowest of the low, was the one responsible for taking care of the master's shoes, their sandals, when he would come in, untying them, and put them away. That was the the role that the servants would fight over to say, I'm not doing that. That is so degrading. It was the lowest service possible. That's what John is applying to himself. And he's saying, I am not fit to touch the shoes of the one who is coming. I love how John puts this in chapter 3, verse 30, the apostle John. He says that John the Baptist says this, he must become greater, I must become less. John's mission was to point to Jesus Christ. Guys, our mission in everything we do in our life is to point to Jesus Christ. There is so much effort and emphasis in Christianity today that you come to Christ so he makes you great. I think that would have made John the Baptist physically ill. You say, you don't come to Jesus so that he can make you great. You point to Jesus because Jesus is great. People don't need to see how awesome we are. They need to see how incredible Jesus is. John's mission was to point to Jesus. And just to give you a foretaste of the future in Matthew, in Matthew chapter 14, we learn about the end of John the Baptist's life. The ruler at that time, another Herod, comes along. He has a party. 
The girl dances for him, and he likes the dance, and he says, I'll give you whatever you want. And she says, give me the head of John the Baptist on a platter. This great man of God has his life ended as a reward for a dance. But make no mistake, he pointed to Jesus Christ. He came to prepare the way for the Lord. How? I want to look at the sermon that John the Baptist preaches. It's a very short sermon, okay? Maybe I should take some notes here. It's a very short sermon, and it's found in chapter, or in verse 2, rather. It consists of two things. Point one, repent. Point two, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. There it is. That's his whole sermon. It's two points, and that's the totality of what was in it. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. We need to look at what biblical repentance really is. What does it mean to repent? The word in Greek literally means to change direction or change your mind. It involves a change. You're going this way, you repent, you're going a different way. Okay, That's that's the literal understanding of the Greek word. Now, it took on this spiritual meaning of you're going this way in sin, you're doing something you should not do, And you admit that, you recognize that, you turn and you're going to do something else. Let's look at a few aspects of biblical repentance. Biblical repentance involves recognition and confession of sin. You cannot change direction without understanding you're going in the wrong direction. You can't recognize you're in sin unless you admit that what you're doing is wrong. So this point right here, and and I know for some of you, you're like, well, duh, I get this. This is like preschool, Sunday school or so. Okay, but understand in our culture today, people are unwilling to admit that there is sin at all. If there is no sin, if there is no standard of right and wrong, if there is no one who can say this is the right way and this is the wrong way, then repentance becomes impossible. Modern thinking about right and wrong has pulled the rug right out from under the very thing that Scripture tells us prepares our hearts to understand who Jesus is. It's ripped it away from us. And we wonder why people struggle to accept Christ. It's because their thinking has been so warped. Understand something about sin. I was often taught that sin is breaking a commandment. And that's true. God says, don't do this, and you do it. You have broken his commandment. You have sinned. But I think a more helpful way of understanding sin is sin is going your own way. It's just going your own way. Now, imagine for a second that a mom says to a child, you may play in the yard, but don't go into the street. Okay, good typical mom thing to say. And imagine the child playing with a ball, and the ball rolls into the street. And the child, in a split second, makes a decision. I need to go get my ball. Maybe they even look both ways. I have checked, and there are no cars coming, right? This is like the mind of a five-year-old or something. I have checked. I've got this all figured out. I can go get my ball. And they go into the street, and they get the ball. Now, did they break a command? Yes. But more importantly, what they said was, I know something more than my mom. I don't need to do what my mom is saying. I can do it my way. Sometimes we go our own way and we don't even break a known command. 
We're just living our lives as if God doesn't exist. And we run into these people all the time, and maybe you're one of them. I'm basically a good person. I haven't killed anybody. I don't cheat on my taxes too much. I, 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 you know, I try to tip well. I try to be a good person. I haven't really broken any major commands. But if we live our lives ignoring the sovereign God who made us for his glory, who sent his son to die in our place to save us for his glory, who wants to be actively at work in our lives, reshaping us for his glory. If we live our lives ignoring that fundamental truth, we are sinning. We're going our own way. And we must change direction. We must repent. And even as Christians... As a day goes by and we say, you know what, I'm just doing this on my own. I'm ignoring the glory of God. I'm not living for his glory. I'm just doing it on my own. I'm going my own direction. We too need to repent. Say, I need to focus on who God is and what he's done for me. Let's go further. So biblical repentance involves recognition and confession of sin. But it is more. Because that's a very mental, maybe educational exercise. But biblical repentance must involve sorrow over sin. There must be something inside of us that feels bad for that sin, that recognizes I am doing it my own way. I have broken a command. I am going according to my own path. That is not right. Biblical repentance then also involves turning from sin. We can't just keep going. There must be a desire to change. I recognize that what I'm doing is wrong. And I want to change. There must be an effort to change. I recognize what I'm doing is wrong and I want to change and I'm going to put things into my life to help me to change. There is a third one here that is so clear from what John the Baptist is saying in verse 8, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. True biblical repentance will bring about true change. If it's real repentance, there must be real change. If there is no real change, it is not biblical repentance. Now this is where we struggle I think we struggle all along the way, but especially here. Because we say, I, I want to change. Someone stuck in an addiction says, I, I, I want to change. I'm willing to take some steps to change, but I just keep falling back into it. How do we stop sinning when our desire, our motivator, as I've used that illustration before, when our motivator is so fundamentally broken? How can we change ourselves? And the answer is ultimately, we can't. Hold that, we'll come back to it. Look at the response. Verse 5, the Jewish people are repenting. They recognize they need to change. Verses 7 through 10, the Pharisees and Sadducees, they're struggling. And John's calling them out and saying, you you act like you want to follow God, but look at your lives. Produce fruit, that's the overflow of our lives, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. This is what they are not doing. They say the right things. 
They might even be able to have a mental checklist of believing the right things, but they are not living it out in the right way at all. In verse 9, we see that they are relying on their identity as children of Abraham. We're born Jewish. We're born into God's family. Friends, no one gets right with God based on their identity. I hope some of you have had the wonderful blessing of being raised by godly parents. Being brought up in a Christian home is, is an incredible blessing. But understand this, there is no one who gets right with God because your parents are a Christian. No one. You don't get into heaven because of your family. Well, I was born and raised in the church. That's great. Tell me what you believe about Jesus Christ. But the other thing that's interesting is no one gets into heaven based on participation. Well, they grew up in Jewish homes. They did Jewish things. They abided by the Old Testament law. I mean, the Pharisees would say, we're doing all the right things. Today, we might say, well, I go to church. I've gone to church every week. I I even occasionally go to midweek studies when we're allowed to do those again. And, And I throw some offering in the offering plate. I've done all the right things. But where's your heart? And what do the actions of your life show? John makes it clear in verse 10 that these leaders are going to face judgment. The axe is already at the root of the trees and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. For all of the talk of these leaders, there is no fruit. And so John comes and he's baptizing people. Baptizing. The word in Greek literally means to immerse, to dunk to completely cover. It's why we practice as a church baptism by immersion. Other churches practice baptism by sprinkling. That's fine. They're just wrong. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I, I think immersion is the closest to what the Greek is saying. We don't know. Maybe there were times in Scripture they, they had to sprinkle because they didn't have enough water. We don't know. But I do think that the baptism by immersion is the closest to what they're talking about. I keep pointing back here in case some of you may not realize it. This is our baptismal. It's a giant bathtub. Uh, and we can fill it with water, and somebody can be dunked into it and be baptized. The symbolism of baptism is like a bath. It is a cleansing. It's this idea of being completely dunked, completely immersed. Now, Jesus hasn't died on the cross yet by the time we come to this passage. There's no death, burial, and resurrection. So John's baptism is something else. And he says it's a baptism for or of repentance. It's a recognition that I need to be changed. I need to be cleaned in preparation for something that God is about to do. It's a very unique time in salvation history when John comes and does this baptism. It didn't save them. It only prepared them for the Savior. He says in verse 11 then, Jesus will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Oh, We don't have time to go into this too deeply, but let me give you a brief overview. What is the Holy Spirit? At its most fundamental understanding, the Holy Spirit is the very presence of God. Third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. Where the Holy Spirit is, the presence of God is. To be baptized into the Holy Spirit is to be completely immersed in, completely covered, completely saturated with the very presence of God. So, 
John is pointing to Jesus, this one who would come and says, he's going to baptize you with the presence of God in your life and with fire. Throughout scripture, fire has a purifying or refining job among God's people. This is what brings about the final aspect of repentance, that change. God's fire changes us. But also, fire is a symbol of the presence of God. Remember Moses? God speaks to Moses out of a what kind of a bush? A burning bush. Fire. Israelites set up the tabernacle and, and we have something to send. The presence of God descends on the tabernacle and then leads them throughout the Exodus and it's cloud and fire. To baptize with Holy Spirit and fire is to baptize, immerse, or fill with the presence of God. How does that happen? Sin must be removed. In order for a temple, a room, a building to be ready for God's presence, they had to do all these purification rites to remove the effects of their sin. When we're talking about us being filled with the presence of God, we need to be purified. The sin must be removed. Why is Jesus going to do that? Because he's the one that's going to die in our place to remove sin from our lives. Only Jesus can do this. The Bible makes it clear when we are saved, we are filled with the Holy Spirit. It is not, contrary to what some people teach, something that comes about later. It is something every believer has at the moment you are saved. The presence of God comes into your life. You are a temple of the Holy Spirit. John is urging the people to repent, to turn away from their own way. And he gives them as the last point of his sermon, the motivation for this, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Repentance is motivated by the understanding that there is a kingdom that's not ours. I mean, if we don't have that, there's no reason to repent at all. If, if the gospel message is God just wants you to live your way and be happy with whatever makes you happy, then there's no point in repentance in Scripture. Throw this passage out. But if we're going to take Scripture seriously, then we have to say there is a kingdom that is coming that is not our way of living. It is different, and it requires us to be changed. Why? Well, because the kingdom is present wherever the king is near. When the king comes, the kingdom has come. And Matthew has made it very clear in the first two chapters, the king has come. The king has been born into this world and the people are going to meet him and they're going to hear more about him, but they need to have their hearts prepared and in the right place. The kingdom of heaven is God's way. It's God's kingdom, God's plan for his glory in everything in this world. And his kingdom is going to conquer everything. Our repentance is our response to that truth. To say, I want to be prepared for that kingdom. I'm tired of living in my own kingdom. I'm tired of living in this world's kingdom. I'm going to change directions and put my focus on the king who is coming. In verse 12, he ends with a message of judgment. His winnowing fork is in his hand. He will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And again, Matthew ties into this long history 
of the prophecies about this coming king. Yes, he would rescue. Yes, he would save. Yes, he would make things right. But the only way for things to be made right is for the things of this world, the things that are sinful, to be removed. There is no final salvation without a final judgment. Heaven would be eternal misery if there was no judgment upon this world. Now, as John is saying to his people and as we still need to hear today, now is the time to decide which side of this we will be on. Are we going to stay on our own path? Our own kingdom? Or are we going to be prepared for the king who has come? All of our life is preparation. All of it. And I don't want anyone here to leave this time of preparation in your life with that nagging feeling that you've forgotten something important. That's a horrible way to live. And so John begins preaching this message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. And guess what Jesus is going to preach in his first sermon as well? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. And that sermon is going to run all throughout Matthew as Jesus teaches and he heals and he preaches and he dies on the cross and he raises from the dead. And all of it is to say, quit going your way, turn to Christ. The kingdom has come. When we go our own way, when we live as if God doesn't matter or doesn't exist, we have forgotten something very important. We are living in his king, or in our kingdom rather, and not his. But the king has come. And I want you to hear that unequivocally today, and I hope you hear it every time from this pulpit, from our Bible studies, every time you open up the Word of God. The King has come, and that changes everything. The kingdom is here. What are you going to do about it? you going to keep going your way? Or are we going to repent and say, Christ, I want to follow you? You're going to see this message and this theme throughout the rest of the book of Matthew. I want to encourage you and to challenge you to watch for how people are called to repentance. Watch for how they respond to the King who has come. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, even as I preach this message, I think of the ways in my own life, in my own heart that I neglect you. I forget about you. I go through moments and days as if you just don't matter. Father, I pray your forgiveness for that. I pray that you would help me to repent, to turn away from my own way, to turn to your way. Because God, one thing I've learned from reading your word is your way is always best. Hard at times, not always pleasant, but always best. And God, I pray for anyone who here who is living in their own kingdom, doing things their own way, maybe living as if you don't exist or they just flat out don't believe you exist. May they hear the message loud and true. The king has come. And his kingdom is at work. And it is growing in this world. 
And one day the things of this world and the things that are out of line with his kingdom will disappear and will be judged. And may they hear the message of grace right now. Repent. Turn away from your own way of living and from thinking and from going and turn to Jesus that he might come in and fill them with his everlasting presence. In the powerful name of Jesus we pray. Amen.